Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. What do we mean when we talk about the occult? It's a term that is quite difficult to define succinctly. The word itself means hidden, and its origins are in late medieval Europe, where practices such as astrology, alchemy, and natural magic were described as occult sciences. After the Enlightenment in the late 16th century, anything that was deemed incompatible with the rationality of scientific method or challenged religious doctrine was labelled as occult, and it could be very dangerous to take an interest in such ideas. Plenty of people did maintain a fascination with the hidden, though, and a broader acceptance would emerge in the late 19th century through the efforts of people such as Elifus Levy and Madame Blavatsky, and these would be expanded upon into the modern era by a huge range of well-known practitioners, many of whom wanted to bring together religion, philosophy and science. Interest in the occult is as strong as ever in the 21st century, when you consider that these subjects are usually those that sit outside of acceptance by mainstream science or organised religion, but can have a deep connection to human experience, it's easy to understand the appeal. And I say that as someone who is very interested. It's intriguing that a lot of these ideas are devalued by the mainstream as much as they ever were. Why is that? To get a better understanding, my guest for this episode is Matt Frederick. Matt is a practicing magician and expert in all things hidden. We talked about his own introduction to the occult, explore the makeup of modern day occulture, and discuss why these ideas are valuable to help deal with the materialistic mainstream we all have to negotiate daily. It was a fascinating chat. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Rick. Good. Thank you for having me here. Ah, oh, no problem. So you're a practicing magician and occultist. Uh, to start off with, just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in, in those practices. Um, I grew up, like most people, oh, not as... There was no grand moments of initiation or wizardry. What I often say is the first time I encountered the fact that magic could be real rather than pretend was as a 13-year-old boy in rural Australia going through the library at my Catholic school and quickly realising that books on witchcraft and contemporary witchcraft were a very reliable source of pictures of nude ladies, which in the 90s with <laughs> no internet was a uh, very rare and precious commodity. There was either you know, books on witchcraft, or hopefully your friend had access to his dad's sock drawer. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I went through my school library and quickly borrowed out uh, a few of the books there. I remember, for some reason, my Catholic scored a lot of those books. They had Alexander's, the book of Alexander's King of the Witches, lots of right. pictures of Alexander's, actually, and uh, that the full encyclopedia of man, myth, and magic, which was a wonderful resource when there was nothing else around, because you could hear a weird word and look it up and learn all about it and go, oh, someone said Jimmy Page was into this Alistair Crowley guy. Let me see if I can find him in this book. Well, he looks spooky. Let's find out more. And, you know, you, you go through that, you get a basic background, you read a lot of things, you get very, very interested. And then I was fortunate enough when I finished high school and went to university, I went to university in a slightly larger rural town in Australia, in a town called Bendigo. And I did a BA in philosophy, but in all honesty, it's probably only now my son to realize what an unusual course it was. My mm -hmm. lecturers were 
experts in and taught us on traditionalists such as Rene Ganon, uh, Fujoshuan, Ananda Kumaraswamy. Kumaraswamy's approach was a lot of uh, the basis for our approach to studying art. Um, we even read Julius Eveler as undergrads, which is a you know nineteen twenty year old is a bit of a bit of a head trip and takes a little while to understand. And obviously, there's some size to his writing that you try that they try to steer us away from. But you know, also reading Thomas Taylor, reading Plato from a Neoplatonic point of view. So I started doing started getting direct teaching, I suppose, about esoteric matters, and at the same time. I myself was going through the kinds of things that a 19-year-old or an 18-year-old kind of does. I'd been through relationships that had broken up. I probably drank a little bit too much, probably, you know, a little bit too much of other things as well and fell into a deep funk and eventually discovered other books on occultism. I managed to get a copy of um, Al Crowley's Magic in Theory and Practice secondhand at a bookshop, which was a nice little find. Um, discovered the works of people like Peter J. Carroll and uh, Phil Hine. So you start to develop a little bit of a, a bit of a practice. So a little bit of chaos magic. Also read some books on the more, um, what we consider the twentieth century hermetic style of things through the Golden Dawn and so forth. Um, I found out that one of my favourite writers of uh, fantasy role playing game solo game books from when I was a teenager, Herbie Brennan, was actually a practicing occultist and discovered some of his works on the topic. So, you know, you discover those things and you start working and learning and then eventually you start branching a little bit more and seeing what happens. Okay, so was there, in terms of magic, was there something, was there a point at which you felt comfortable to start um, practicing it, again, like working with spells or incantations and things like that? Because um, I, from my point of view, sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming in terms of the information that you're taking in and and knowing and knowing where to start. Did, it, it sounds like um, it sounds like you didn't really have that problem. <laughs> I, the one of the first books I got, which was actually by um, Herbert Brennan, which was on a more practical approach, he took you into um, the Golden Dawn approach model a little bit after Israel Regadi, and his regime was you know twice daily lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, daily middle pillar exercise. So, you know, I started going to that all, all very serious, but it was, um, how do I put it? When you're doing that stuff and at the same time, during your university studies, you're being exposed to deeper symbolism. Remember, I was reading Rene Gainon at the time as well. It all started to seem a little bit naff. And the idea of the symbolism was very, it didn't click with me. That that whole hermetic, Kabbalistic approach, looking up your tablets, correspondences, it didn't work for me. So then I, well, it was the early days of the internet, and I discovered that wonderful website, The Chaos Matrix, which was a source of chaos magic, and I discovered uh, the sigil magic form taken from Austin Spare, and I went, oh, well, that's good. I don't need to memorize the Hebrew alphabet or do any astrology. I can just draw some squiggles on a paper, close my eyes for 10 minutes, and see what happens in the world once I've forgotten about it. And that's really where I started trying, I suppose, what you call practical things, you know, the kind of things you normally do when you're 19 years old. I was able to, you know, if I needed money for cigarettes, I could make sure that came along and so forth. And it was, um, yeah, it was really sigil magic that got me going to, I suppose, the practical sense. And that's, I suppose, very common for magicians. You start off very excited by this big stuff. I remember um, 
Anton LaVey, I think it might be in the Satanic Bible, it might be in the Satanic Rituals, he says part of the appeal of magic isn't the, the doing of it, it's that appeal of feeling like you dive into dusty tomes, it's very self-fulfilling. And that's how you get started, then you try and do practical stuff, and then you move on from there, I suppose, and that's, I suppose, something that happened with me as well. Yeah, okay, so um, one thing I'm thinking is that um, the practices like this, this the occult practices the the term occult means hidden doesn't it and i guess it comes from a time hmm. when when um in europe there there was the enlightenment and there was there was a movement towards more rational thinking and i suppose in a way the fact that these practices were sort of treated as less seriously and, and with more contempt is as it is given them some sort of power that 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 draws people in that they're, they're sort of they're, they're they're a bit underground aren't they i think i can i can see that would be um, appealing as well. I, I from uh, myself as well. I, one of the things I like is that you start learning about these things, and the more you do, the more you realise that they're actually relatively. There's a lot of these um, forces already at work in in the world. Like in in terms of things like magic, uh, I, I think there's a lot of magic at at work in the world. It's just it's just not called that. Oh, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the classic example, of course, advertising, which can be <laughs> yeah. Very, very similar. But even now, you know, in the 21st century, we look back on our own heritage and, you know, you sit down as a moody 16-year-old, you want to read a bit of poetry and you pick up some W.B. Yeats and you read, you know, The Second Coming and opens up with turning and turning the widening Gaia. Mm. And then eventually you find out that that model, the Gaia, that metaphor, he obtained through performing automatic writing through techniques that he learned as himself being initiated in the Golden Dawn. And he starts to go, well, if this central figure of the 20th century was actively involved in this, then in its own way, magic has helped shape the 20th and 21st centuries. Similarly with, um, oh, what would be another example? James Joyce is another very good example. Uh, to some degree, Ulysses, but even to a greater degree, um, Finnegan's Wake is filled with, with references to occultism. Now, I'm not saying that James Joyce was a practicing occultist, but certainly he looked at that symbolism, and obviously Vico is the great example, but he took that and he used it to create a model for the whole universe into a book that we're not going to figure out for another thousand years. It's right. shaped the world around us in its own very, very strange way. And even then, you know, I remember when I was 12 years old and I turned on the TV in the morning and there'd be the video clips playing and There'd be some boring pop music. And then there was this exciting band called the KLF, and that was like, whoa, who are these guys? Then I find out they used to do a song about Doctor Who. Then I find out they're into Robert Anton Wilson. Then I found out who the Illuminati were. And it all just traces on through. And the whole world around us, and this is just in a very practical sense in a way of saying, well, this person knew about this guy, of Praxa Techniques, and this guy. The world around us has got the traces of occultism all through it. And if you don't see that or recognize that you're really blind to the shapes that have formed the world and in some ways that's the real conspiracy theory understanding that there's another way of thinking that shapes the world we have today and you can then fall down the rabbit hole of assuming there's puppet masters and gnomes in zurich and all the rest of it but just that simple realization that the world is a magical place on a practical sense not in a waking up and seeing the world's beautiful but seeing that magic has influenced the world we live in it's quite a it's quite a shock to remember that and i still sometimes have to remind myself of that on an almost daily basis 
definitely. I I was um I, I listened to an interview that someone did with Carl Abrahamson, who's done a a book on our culture. Mm. Um, and from that, he was talking about how, um, in, in terms of cultural forces that have shaped human history, you have art, magic, and the occult. Um, but now, when in in mainstream society, I I think when people when the idea of culture is presented, it's mostly art and the like the hidden meaning behind art and its relationship with those other ideas like magic and the occult is sort of downplayed or or, or not taken seriously. Well, you're absolutely right. And it's a, uh, there are some movements both in, uh, I suppose, the wider world and also in academia to recognize that there've been a few um, literary reinterpretations of a few figures over the last 20 or so years where people are understanding the influence of the cult of them. And James Joyce is a great example for a long time with Yates, like I mentioned before, his occult practices were kind of shoved under the chair, shoved behind the couch, not really spoken of. But now they're recognizing how central they were to his way of being, his way of seeing the world. And we have to recognize that. And that's not to say that to recognize that you have to necessarily be a believer or practitioner in yourself. You just have to recognize that it is a way of thinking that has shaped the minds of the people who have shape the world. I mean, another great example, of course, is Alistair Crowley, who through his own way as a thinker, touched many aspects of modern thought, whether it is sex, drugs, or rock and roll. And yeah. if you can't acknowledge the influence of magical thinking on these three central pillars of our current culture, then you don't understand the culture itself. Do you think that there's a cultural movement of more acceptance of these ideas? There is, and it's it's beginning to look at these ideas more in their own terms. I was thinking about this the other day with uh, media depictions of witchcraft and the, the two biggest known ones in their day, I suppose. I'm thinking of today, well, yesterday I was sitting down watching The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, right. and I can remember uh, watching The Craft, back when that film came out. And they're both films that are, well, well, films in a TV series that are in some ways at the, how do you put it? They're reflecting the culture that's around them. When The Craft came out, witchcraft was something bad. It was a warning. It almost came out of a Jack Chick tract, what they were going on through there. Mm. It was trying to capitalize on, at the time in the 90s, there was a witch craze. You could go to any, you know, rave or dance club or Dungeons and Dragons group i went to all of them and meet a practicing <laughs> witch if you wanted to um whilst today there's another rising movement of witchcraft but they're depicted in very different ways so in sabrina the whole story is yes witchcraft is depicted as a dangerous but it's also its own thing it's a thing to be discovered and treated on its own terms it's not a walk in the park it's not like you discover magic and suddenly your life is easy you have to encounter something dangerous and go through that initiatory journey now i got to the end of season two yet, so I don't know how it goes, but it's not depicted as something to be, how do I put it? It's dangerous, but it's not a sinister malevolent force to the same degrees as described in older depictions like in The Craft or even going back further, you know, Hammer Homer, the old Hammer Horror films where you open up the text, you discover Dracula, and by opening yourself up to the world of the occult, you've discovered things that you shouldn't have and you've unleashed danger in the world. So our encounters with it are changing. It's becoming more normalized in our culture 
I think that's a little bit of a rambling way of putting it, but I think my point is clear, you know, where once 30 years ago, whilst it was in the mainstream, it was not depicted in a positive lives, only depicted as a warning. These days when it is in the mainstream, it's not championed, and I don't think it ever can be or should be, but rather depicted as a thing in its own right to be discovered. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I, I think it's it's interesting that I, I've always equated it to you wouldn't you wouldn't read a book about you wouldn't think after reading a book about being a doctor that you could perform surgery on somebody. So, <laughs> so you know, it, it takes it takes time, doesn't it, to to learn these? It, it it won't you won't be able to perform magic straight away. I mean, I know with I know with chaos magic that it, it kind of the whole point is to eschew that idea that you have to spend a lot of time and 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 put a lot of ceremony around it but, but not ultimately... a lot of ceremony but i would say in case magic you do have to put a lot of um timing into it i don't know what the um iot the luminous Thanatiris, is current training regime is but it used to be that before they'd even look at you you had to have an unbroken diary of six months work of um peter j carroll's live at mmm uh, mmm right. which is mostly most of that work is sitting down, shutting up and being quiet. You have to be able to do that for six solid months before they'll even give you a look in. Wow, okay. That's, so that, that, it wasn't, that it wasn't a fast path. No. Because I've read um, uh, Condensed Chaos by Phil Hyen, um, mm. which I really liked. Um, and, that, and a lot of that struck me as um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of psychology in, in magic. Yes. Well, a lot of it is, I mean... I mean Al, Al Crowley is still the big influence. He's the elephant in the room always. And even um, in his initial order, well, his second order, the AA, the first task was to do whatever you want for a year and keep a record of it. Okay. And that's that's what the case magician does at first. You go out there, you discover all these techniques. Oh, there's tarot. I can mix tarot up with some runes and I can combine it with some symbols taken from My Little Pony in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's what resonates with me. That works. I'm going to throw it all together. And, you know, we've all kind of done things like this. I've done I've done invocations of characters from Peppa Pig from time to time. It worked. <laughs> okay. Um, and you uh, see what archetypes resonate with you, but then you move beyond that. You almost have to throw the old ways aside before they start to make sense with you. And that's where people like, um, like Gordon White can be very interesting because he's – known as a chaos magician, but a lot of his techniques are very traditional. He'll follow what's written down in some of the grimoires very closely from what I understand. He's described you know, having to find the right wood to make the wand of the right length and take things like astrology and tarot very seriously, which in the old days of chaos magic would have thrown out, oh, we don't need that. That's the old ways. So there's a, there's a lot more rigor to it than you might think, but I think the rigor comes after having made the mistakes that teach you why the rigor is necessary and also help you understand what techniques are the ones that are going to work for you. Yeah, I suppose as the longer a, a practice becomes established, it, there's more chance that it's going to have that element to it, isn't there? More, more, more in terms of getting to a certain point before you start doing something. Very much. Respecting, respecting the practice, I guess. Respect the practice, but you've also got to form the trap of not becoming like a top hole in the opening scene to fill it on the roof and just following tradition because it is 
tradition and the reason for this tradition I forget. <laughs> uh, now I'm just thinking of a chaos magic version of Fiddler on the Roof. I, I think that'd be brilliant. That would be absolutely wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of some of the important figures in our culture, mm. where would you say is a good starting point? It varies for the person. Um, I think actually Phil Hines' book, Condensed Chaos, that you mentioned before, is a good book really for anyone because it's very, very down to earth. It encourages doing very basic things. Often, you know, uses the technique of do things slowly. Think about what you're doing. Write things down if you think it's necessary. Experiment and see what works for you. And uh, a lot of that stuff makes perfect sense. His other book, um, Prime Chaos, is very good as well. Um, it's funny because I never used to like him way back in the day, but these days I often would suggest people have a look at Anton LaVey and the good old Satanic Bible, um, which is a hard book to read these days because the organisation that built up around of the Church of Satan has gone in a very different direction to what it might have originally been. But when you go back to that book, he seems to take things very seriously, but he seems to have absolutely no patience for any bullshit whatsoever. Hmm. So if you read his um, his techniques, they're all very much about understanding what works for you, taking a framework and turning it into something else, and ultimately create your own system or be a slave to another man's, which is wonderful advice you could give to any magician. You start with a framework and then you develop it. So I, I couldn't say think of anything better myself. That's definitely some good advice, I think. Um, mm. and Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, the only challenge with Anton LaVey is, I remember this at the time, I when I first discovered him, you go to the Church of Satan website and they're describing all this stuff about this grand atheistic organisation. But then you go back and read the original text and it's not describing that. And it's very, um, it's very interesting to read that book for what it is, not through the lens of what the organisation has become. Yeah, that's probably one book I'd recommend to people. Um, trying to think what else. Peter J. Carroll's books can be challenging um, and often full of unnecessary mathematics, so that could be entertaining in itself. I'm trying to think of some other authors I'd recommend to people. Stephen Flowers can be good, but um, his books, they're not relevant to everyone. Um, I suppose at this point, um, it might be good to just go through the basics of, of what chaos magic is, because <laughs> I know mm. I, I know I know a little bit about myself, I, and I know it, it kind of it kind of arose in the like around the same time as punk music, and and took a lot of inspiration yes. from uh, a guy called Austin Os, Austin Osmond Spare, or that's right, Austin Osmond Spare, that's the man. Okay, so just um, just tell us a little bit about about chaos magic and 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 how it works relative to what one might conceive of when they think of, of of magic as a whole. Well, yeah, you're, you're right to talk about punk music. You could describe chaos magic as um, magic is performed by people who uh, listen to punk, read 2000 AD, and uh, read James Gluck's book on chaos. Um, the idea, I suppose, is to cut away what's unnecessary and get back down to the basics. So when you look at the original works of Peter Carroll and Ray Sherwood and so forth, they're trying to work out what's actually there. What's the minimum amount of technique that actually works? Okay, so when I'm performing a Solomonic ritual, I'm casting a circle, I'm drawing the triangle, 
I'm lighting the incense. What's going on with me? I'm going into an altered state of consciousness. So let's see if we can induce a state of consciousness without necessarily going through the ritualistic rigmarole. Similarly, for example, if I am drawing some symbols onto the ground, let's look into what's going into that. So these are some signs that mean something. What's an alternate way of generating a sign that means something? And they borrowed a technique from Austin Spare where you'd take, you'd write down a set as indicating what you want, cut unnecessary letters, jumble them up, and form from them a symbol that represents what you want, but you can't backwards engineer the, the symbol. It's just there. It's just a symbol. You can't actually work out what the original intent was. So you use that as your symbol on the dirt or your inscription on parchment or your layman around your chest or you uh, draw it on yourself and body paint and you go to a rave and all sorts of those other fun things. Um, it's Yeah, cutting it back to the basics. I do want to point out that Austin Spare himself was inspired. Many people in Chaos Magic was not himself a Chaos Magician and his work has been quite influential in other parts of Magic as well, whether in Thelema, um, certain aspects of the left-hand path, uh, Kenneth Grant, the Typhonian OTO. He's not uh, himself a Chaos Magician, but Chaos is one of the things that sprung from his writings, that people read him and were inspired by his techniques and could apply them to that uh, that back to the basics approach that defines chaos magic. Yeah, I suppose that's that's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the time movements will be inspired by somebody who wasn't, who they feel represents what they're doing, but actually themselves wasn't doing what, what they're doing. <laughs> very much so. And that's, that's very common in many things, but I think it's more common than ever in, uh, well, more common than in other areas when in occultism, it seems to happen quite regularly. The chain of succession is not very solid. I don't think you could find any authentic Rosicrucian groups anywhere. Or, uh, well, you can make a case about a few of the Thelemi groups, whether they're doing what uh, Alistair Crowley intended. But uh, that's a nasty can of worms, and I'll probably be shunned as a centre of pestilence for saying that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, go ahead. Sorry. Go no, no, you go ahead. No, no, you go <laughs> that's very polite. Um, but that's that's the nub of chaos magic. You know, get back, get down to the basics, work out what is necessary and what isn't. Um, that I suppose that was the original idea. And when you look at, like I said, a book like Libanal and Psychonaut, the practical elements of that book are very very short. A lot of that book is speculation and enjoyable fancies. But the actual practical part is very short, very basic, and doesn't want to intrude with unnecessary symbolism. Rather, you create the symbolism for yourself. And that's another really important part of it. And that's what Spare would call the alphabet of desire. And uh, Carol borrowed that terminology, though what he did with it might not be exactly the same as what Spare did. But you create your own symbols that mean something to you. And I'm not just talking about you know, written or visual symbols, but symbols in the world itself what can i use to uh make change in the world so a traditional golden door magician might go all right i want to uh i want to understand uh the mysteries of resurrection i'm going to invoke osiris a chaos magician might go well 
Osiris doesn't mean anything to me. By invoking that god form, I'm not going to learn anything about it because I don't know enough about it. The experience of resurrection that I've had growing up, the character that I saw who would be killed and rise again over and over again was Optimus Prime. So I'm going to invoke <laughs> him instead. Yeah, no, that makes that's fine, isn't it? Yeah, um, I, 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 I totally get that. But especially you have to be careful if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna invoke Optimus Prime. I suppose you have to. I, I imagine there's a, a certain amount of, of of caution there to to make sure that he, you can he leaves you alone once you've done your. <laughs> well, that's the uh, that's one of the defining cast practices. What they call a banishing with laughter. You don't. Mm. You can if you want close a circle and cast your pentagrams and all the rest of it. But if you just look at what you've done and laugh at us, you've sent sent whatever spirits you might have summoned on their way. They're not going to bother you anymore. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. You put yourself back in another... Basically, you're breaking that state of mind you're in, that altered state of consciousness with a sudden shock, and you're going back to the state of consciousness you're in anymore. And depending on what model you choose to use, and a chaos magician might use multiple models in succession or even simultaneously that changes the state of mind you're in it banishes any actual spirits it represents a change of consciousness it can mean any or all of those things again to the case magician what will matter is did this work or not what were the results which is itself another fuzzy thing trying to work out whether you get any results from magic okay yeah because i was i was thinking about that um because i suppose in one way of describing chaos magic is that it's it's kind of about the resource. Do you think that's too simple a, a description, or, or and do you think that results magic is potentially more dangerous than than other less interactive practices? Results magic is a funny thing because it has a way of surprising you, and sometimes the results aren't always what you expect. And you know, you always hear, you know, examples of I did an invocation for money. And then my great uncle, Bill, who I hadn't seen in 30 years, died and left me something in his will. I don't <laughs> know if those stories ever can actually be traced to any fact, but you always get examples like that. Um, what I would say, one of the odd things about magic is that it isn't science. And that's a really important thing to understand. I know there are some people out there who try and find scientific evidence for magic whether it's um you know way back in the days of paracycle research and these days there's a few people out there doing experiments and intention and prayer and so forth but it always strikes me that that's on the wrong path because whatever you can find through that most likely isn't magic because magic is any form of magic is in itself a metaphysical endeavor and the scientific method is metaphysically agnostic it can't encounter those kinds of things so if you sit down and go all right i'm going to do a run of i don't know double blind testing with 10 sigils that have been some of which have been charged some of which have been happened i'm going to see which ones bring out results and which ones don't you're not going to learn anything you're just going to find that random stuff happened in your life that didn't have meaning but if say oh i don't know I'm short of rent money this week. And I go, right, I really need to pay my rent. I'm going to get kicked in my house. And I sit down and I write, it is my will to pay my rent this week on a piece of paper. And I shuffle that up into a sigil. And I draw it on my wall in glow-in-the-dark paint. I turn the lights out. 
I've done stuff like this. It was great. You cross your legs and you <laughs> meditate on that sigil. Then you scrub it off. Cast that intent from your mind, if you possibly can, and go to the world. And then two days later, you get a phone call from a mate who goes, I just remembered, I owe you $200. Is that exactly what you owe in rent? Well, it, it works, works, but <laughs> hang on a second. It wouldn't have worked if I hadn't loaned my mate $200 six months before I cast a sigil. A sigil didn't cause that to happen. Or maybe my magic didn't work. But what did happen is an event that may or may not have happened, however had any causal effect with what you did, was granted meaning by what you did. Suddenly the world became a more significant place. And that's how magic works. You take events and you make them mean something. You're not necessarily changing the world out there, but you're changing the world inside you, which in itself is creating change in the outer world. So magic is more about yourself. And this is operative magic. You change yourself and the world becomes a different place. And suddenly you find that you can do things. It's a, it's a little bit of a logical tease, but it's, a, it's almost way a, a semiotic way of understanding the world. It's like a, Wittgenstein provided a great example. Um, he found that you find that most traditional cultures who perform rain dances only perform it when they know the rain's going to come. So <laughs> right. they know they're not causing the rain, but they know that it means something when they do the dance. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think I think so. I know you mean. I, I think for me, the, the sometimes the thing I find tricky when when thinking about trying chaos magic is is just kind of quieting down the the hyper rational part of me because i this stuff is completely irrational yeah exactly exactly and i'm i'm totally on board with that i really i am but it's it I, I, and i know that um i know that being able to get into a meditative state can really help and i think i think for me when i um when i read condensed chaos i found it a fascinating book it, it to me it read a lot like um a book about psychology and and it is i guess mm. i mean it absolutely is yeah but um for, for me i i think it's more just being able to kind of quieten down the the, the rational side of me and, and get more into that that mind space where I can can do this thing and 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 I think like we were talking about before it would just take practice so I've I, I read condensed chaos and then I kind of moved on to learning more about things like tarot and and other 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 less results based magic forms and and I kind of thinking well, I should have just kind of carried on I shouldn't I shouldn't have maybe stopped because I, I think I was a little um intimidated by it if I'm honest <laughs> hmm. well the way the way I had a big realization many years ago and I was doing this I realized that I can't confirm whether or not what I've done has actually changed what's happened in the world there's no way I can do that it's not a rational thing I can't do like I said double blind experiments with it stuff happens anyway hmm. But what I can confirm is that by engaging this practice, I've made what happens more meaningful to me, which creates change in my own being. And by creating this change in my own being, I then create further change in the world and you get this feedback loop happening. And that's, that's really the start of almost genuine magical and mystical thinking. Um, at its core, if you look at sigil magic and go, well, I'm ruling things in the world. <laughs> Sorry there, that was my dog. That's okay. Um, I am 
not doing anything different than if my great aunt sits down at the secret <laughs> and wills something new in her life. I know, assume mm. you're familiar with that book, The Secret. But if I really act with uh, intent, I'm changing myself and the way I see the world. And that's, I think that's the core of it all. What, 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 I think I'll, 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 try, I'll try another story that might make things a little bit clearer. Okay. When I was, uh, many years ago when I was first engaging in this kind of thing, I, I put it aside for a long time and went, well, I, I can't confirm that this is changing the world out there. I don't know what's happening. The, the, the rational part of my brain jumped up and that's not necessarily a bad thing. So I put it aside. And I went, you know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to learn guitar. I'm 21, never played guitar in my life. I'm going to learn it. And then I realized that the process I had to go through to do that was pretty much exactly the same as the process I had to go through to cast a sigil. I had to sit down, I had to shut my brain off and had mm-hmm. to do some work. I had to practice my chords, I had to practice my finger picking, work away at it. And then suddenly in three months, I was a person I wasn't before. I, instead of being just Matt, I was Matt the guitar player. I'd actually create a change in my being. And through playing guitar, I could change the world. I could sit down in a room, start playing, and the atmosphere in the room would change. Or people would start singing the song I was playing. I was actually inflicting real change in the world. And that changed my way of thinking about magic. Because I realized that the process was more ordinary than I thought it was. In fact, by do, most of us might actually be magicians without realizing it. Yeah. Because we create a world that's meaningful to us. Yeah, definitely. I... I... I I think that's a very good point. Um I I think it's especially in the western world we live in a in a culture where through advertising like we were talking about before you can get the sense that these these massive enti- these entities basically know you better than yourself and magical thinking and, and and learning things like this it it gives you a sense of agency doesn't it it gives you a sense of contr- of of control of yeah. <laughs> of control of your life but if you let it go the other way, it can take that sense of control away as well. And that's why I have a fascination with what is perhaps unfortunately called conspiracy theories. You know, that idea of thinking that there's someone out there controlling the world. Yeah. Because you take that kind of approaching of adding meaning to the world, but you use it not to create agency for yourself, but to justify your own lack of agency. It's the same, I don't want to say mental processes, it's the same metaphysics, but applied in the wrong way upside down almost right because yeah i mean I, I definitely after world war ii i think uh, in america there was lots of interest in uh things like mind control and crazy things like remote viewing so it, they were definitely yeah. uh, the, I mean, the u.s the u.s military and the u.s government definitely took an interest in esoteric ideas oh most definitely how much how well that worked well well, I don't know if we can really say because, of course, if I say, well, there's no evidence of it, it's like, well, that's what they want you to think. <laughs> uh, so we can't really say if it was successful or not, but it doesn't how, how it, it doesn't appear to have leaked out. It hasn't entered in the world. No one's tried to commercialize this technology. No one's gone, oh, remote viewing works. Oh, I wonder if I can implant the idea of Coca-Cola in people's minds with a team of psychics. Because if it worked, probably someone would do that straight away. Yeah, I... I've read recently about an idea of um, something called an egregore, which sounds a bit like a like a tulpa, yeah. but it's a tulpa that is created by the the mindset of a group of people rather than, than one person. A lot of magical orders, their intent was largely to create an egregore. Mm. 
Um, the German fraternity Saturni was uh, largely focused on agricultural cre creation if you uh, dive into their particular work. Um, yeah, that's a whole interesting idea and again involves a different kind of thinking. You can't understand an egregore with scientific thinking. It doesn't yeah. make any sense, but it does act real. You can treat them as a real thing and they seem to create change in the world. Yeah, because when I read about it, it made me think of, um, I work for a, a company that was a, a, it worked in the financial services industry and and every so, it was one of those jobs where every few months you'd have like a, have a big group meeting where they talk about what the company was doing or what it wanted to be doing you know, in the next few years and so my sympathies yeah it was I, I hate it mm -hmm. um but a lot of the language that they used and and their concept of the business was, was it, it it struck me a lot I didn't really not really at the time I was just at the time I was just fed up with it and, and thought it was you know corporate bullshit but looking back the way they spoke about the the company was like the company was a, an entity. Like, it, like what, what people were doing was for the good of this thing that existed and was a force and would would you know they were saying it would be a, a force that would help the work help the world basically. Did they have company values? That's always a good one. Yeah, yeah, and yes, they did, and uh, lots of um, lots of symbolism in the posters around the office. Lots of eyes and heart and butterflies and and hands and things. I'd noticed that that just I know it it, it troubled me. I have to admit, <laughs> and that's an inversion of a very real thing that we can do. And this is very common in pre-modern traditional cultures, and it's common in I suppose traditional cultures that still exist today, I see it here in Australia, where you treat a thing as if it had personhood. If something is sacred, it's no less a person than you or your mother or your brothers or your sisters or your entire tribe, which can be almost considered in some ways a big person. So mm. obviously we've got, you know, in Australia, there's the famous debate about climbing on Uluru. Um, there have been actual rivers that have been effectively treated legally as if they were people, they've been granted personhood. And that's a that's a very noble thing because it's a awakening to the world. It's looking at things and understanding them as they are, yes. not as they seem to be, not as a thing that can be measured and weighed out and hit with a rock, but as the actual thing behind that, which is what we do when we talk to people because we recognise the person inside them if we couldn't do that then we couldn't carry on a conversation language wouldn't work but then when we apply that to a company a thing which serves no purpose is not a thing that existed in the world prior to us we can't recognize the personhood in us it doesn't have any goals in and of itself except i suppose perhaps well at the worst case you know, generating money for the shareholders in the best case you might have a ngo which has got a noble goal can still be treated as a person but it's a it's an inversion. I, I, I dare say, in a very old-fashioned sense, it's almost almost satanic. Not the nice satanic like we get these days, but the the more traditional idea of what it is. It's taking hmm. the great thing and inverting it to create only a purely negative. Yeah, I, I, I and I, I know what you mean about the what when you're talking about giving rights to a ribbon and that idea and and it is a, a really nice idea i one thing that does give me a little bit of hope is that i don't think that that idea would be sort of it wouldn't be met by too many people with 
with the with the concept that it was stupid or bad. I mean, it might be unusual, but but I I like to think that most people would go, oh, okay, well that's all right then. But I I, I do think these these ideas these ideas of, of personhood outside of humanity are, are 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 easier to get for people. It's just it's just not it's not it's not spoken about a lot. It makes sense to think of things in that way. It makes things sense to think of the world as alive. Then we can do things like, for example, mining. Now, the way mining is done these days, and again, in Australia, we've had the huge controversy about the build of the Adani mine, is you've got a great big hole in the ground. You've got a, It's a bucket of resources, and you pull them out, and you're done. Hmm. Whereas a traditional idea of mining is you've got a relationship with the land. There might be spirits in the mine german miners had active relationships with the elves and trolls and other spirits that lived in the mines and it was seen as a matter of exchange yes we were digging things out for profit but it wasn't just an empty bucket that we could take things out of we actually had a relationship with the living spirit of the land itself that we were taking this from and that changes the whole idea of what it is to work suddenly Mining becomes in itself a spiritual practice, perhaps akin to priesthood in its own way. Mm. All just because we think of the world as a living place. So like like my good old Billy Blake, nature without man is barren. Mm. You need to make it alive. Right, yeah. Um, do you think that there's a chance that that could happen? Is there a, where you are? Um, I, I know that there's there seems to be a, a better relationship now between the Australian government and Aboriginal people, do you do you think that there's a? It's not a high. It's not coming from a very high bar, but there have been some improvements. Yes. Do you think that there's the potential there for for that sort of thing to happen? Um, there is the potential. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, I think, like many parts of the world, we have to deal with um, with a, a far right that doesn't necessarily acknowledge. The, the significance of how to put it, they acknowledge the need to take other cultures as they are, to recognise them for what they are, rather they measure everything against the standard of what they think the world should be, which is a ugly way to do things. But there's definitely potential there. Um, and there are some, there are some good things happening. Um, one thing I've discovered recently, I live in Melbourne, is you can now download an app for your phone and as you walk around on Google Maps, it'll tell you the sacred significance of the area you're going through. So I never knew when I catch my train to work every day as I cross over the, the Yarra River near Burnley Station, there's a traditional meeting place there. There's a corroboree tree. Never knew that. But now I know that this land that I go past every day was incredibly sacred to the people who lived here for tens of thousands of years. And that, that changes the way you see you see the world and uh, it can only be a good thing, I think. Yeah, I definitely. I, I, one thing I, I like to think is that there's this idea of, of progression in, in civilization, especially in Western civilization anyway, that, that in some ways, mm. especially with the, with, with the, after the industrial revolution, the, the progression through technology. But I hope that there'll be a time when we can see that when we think of, uh, advanced societies we can look back at aboriginal cultures and cultures from you know thousands of years ago and and, and appreciate that they had a a more sophisticated way of of existing i think i i um i went to a talk by graham hancock 
a couple of weeks ago who was talking about his mm. new book, which is um, about the um, evidence that there was an advanced civilization um, in North America uh, over over 10,000 years ago. Oh, the Mormons will love that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was fascinating, but and but it was a little sad that he, he in that talk he was talking about how in the sort of archaeological establishment those ideas are still frowned upon and he still gets abuse. And, and the more I read about um, past societies, you definitely get the sense that they had a more... They had a more intimate sense of the world around them in terms of astronomy and how they how they lived and how they farmed. They, I, th- I think it goes back to what you were talking about about um, extending personhood into everything, which I guess is sort of animism. But it seems like these ideas, which could push forward our understanding of ourselves, still seem to be on the fringes. And and as much as people are more than open to hear about them, it still seems that there's this resistance to to engaging with those ideas. Yeah, and you're very right to call out this idea of progress. Um, it's easy to forget the idea that the world progresses and moves upwards is a very modern way of thinking. Most cultures think the world descends. So you start, you know, mm. take from Hesiod, start in the Golden Age, back when we just lived out in the fields, move to the Silver, Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Age of Heroes, and then to the Iron Age, or you know the Kali the Kali Yuga that we live in now. The world descends; mm. it goes downwards. You see that idea everywhere in uh, Christianity, in the idea of the fall, obviously in the, the uh, idea of the Yugas, in uh, Platonism, in his description of the development of uh, cities. To think that the world is moving in a progressive sense is an inversion, and I don't want to say one way is necessarily wrong or right. But like Graham Hancock pointed out there, and quite rightly so, the sense that the world must be moving upwards and progressing and developing blinds us to what may have been and what may be in our own world as well. And we don't realise the advanced knowledge of other cultures and not necessarily in a scientific sense, oh, these people knew how to move heavy rocks. These people knew medicines we don't know about, but even in a more metaphysical sense, these people knew more about the world that we live in and our relationship to the world than we do today. Perhaps even we've cut ourselves off from the world. You mentioned before knowledge of astronomy. Well, you know, good luck getting much knowledge of astronomy now if you live in a city with streetlights. You know, you can yeah. barely even see the stars. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, you, you're absolutely right. Um, it would have been probably pitch black at nighttime wouldn't it for most most cultures not not even only a few hundred years ago and you can't you can't i can't quite imagine what the night sky must have been like to to, to those societies and the effect it must have had on them and especially um in places like in ancient egypt the there seems to be um the the, the concept of how the ancient egyptians understood the night sky seems to be kept slightly separate from their their sort of under, like the 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 book of the dead, the 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 ideas that they had there. I mean, because it seems like the the ancient Egyptians, the the night sky was sort of where their their gods lived, and and they the the pyramid mm. complex at Giza seems to be seems to be them trying to construct that sort of heavenly realm on Earth and interacting with their gods that way. I mean, I. It seems like a like the pyramid seemed like a combination between a cathedral and a an observatory or a, or a launch pad, <laughs> or 
just a recreation of what's above. Yeah, yeah. Which in some ways was what the medieval cathedrals were, Notre Dame. It was an attempt to lift you up and recreate not the physical conditions, but the metaphysical conditions of the world above us, the world outside of the everyday, to put in that state of mind that is equal to the state of mind of communion with the divine. That was implied in the architecture. Mm. Same with the um, pyramids. And of course, we can't forget the Egyptians as well, that their entire livelihood relied on the night sky because they would track the move of those stars to know when the Nile was going to flood. And if they didn't know when the Nile was going to flood, they were nothing. Their entire civilization was only a few miles wide and relied completely on that one river. Mm. Different way of viewing the world completely. Yeah. And and going back to what you were saying about uh, cathedrals, uh, when, I, when I've been in like huge ecclesiastic buildings like that the the columns the the columns that line the aisle they 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 remind me of of trees they, they and they go up and they branch out and they it's like a like a forest almost and it's it it's it's funny that what a cathedral will do or, or any any religious building that has that sort of monumental scale to it it is and i think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier it, it does sort of engage you in in thinking differently and it, it engages you on a personal level it, it, it affects your psychology and isn't it strange how a great big building of stone created by men, you go into the first thing you think about is nature. Mm. That's that's a kind of that's that's a perfect example of magical thinking as I think in my own current practice it's meant to work. The world is related, you see those connections and you can create those connections something else to transform the state of mind. So someone hundreds of years ago, carved those stones, a group of men, and you today can walk in there and your way of being who you are changes. A significance has been added to the world because something people did hundreds of years ago. If that's not magic, God damn it, I don't know what else is. And that's the same thing as when you cast a sigil or cast a circle, you're creating change in the world, you're creating change in the state of mind. It's chaos magic. Mm. Ah, well said. That's that's brilliant. I think that's a that's a beautiful way to to end the episode. Oh, thank you. Uh, but this is this has been a fantastic chat, Matt. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Rick. Thank you for asking me. I know it's taken a little bit of uh, time for the uh, stars to come right, as they say in the classics, for the time <laughs> this. But uh, I really do appreciate us, and uh, yeah, hope uh, hope people enjoy listening to this and my own little rambling ideas. Uh, I'm sure they will. If people want to find out more about you, where can they find you? <laughs> Probably the easiest way is on Twitter. Um, to put my spell on you, I go under on Twitter and I mostly post a few articles that I find that remind me that the world is far more interesting than it appears to be in the day-to-day in nine-to-five. And that's that's just my own little way of adding a bit of magic to the world, reminding people that the world is magical. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I love your posts. I think they're great. Thank you very much. Cool. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, Matt, thank you so much. No problem at all. Thank you again. And um, yeah, I look forward to hearing this once it goes live. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did recording it. I'd been planning to have Matt on as a guest ever since the podcast began, and he definitely didn't disappoint. It was fascinating to discuss his experiences with magic and other occult subjects, 
and start to get a better understanding of how they work. I think some great advice was imparted about how to engage with these practices. First and foremost, a lot of us are magicians already, or if not, the potential is definitely there. Secondly, magic isn't science, it's creative, irrational and subjective. The great thing is that you can start very simply and then find what works for you and go from there. I really enjoy talking about chaos magic. That's something I've had a bit of trouble getting my head around. And also egregores. Both are subjects which deserve their own episodes, which I will look to make happen. Matt also made a great point that large corporate entities subvert the positive principles of something like animism. And if that's the case, then it's no surprise that these organisations seek to control the cultural mainstream and keep the information that challenges that hidden. So I guess the occult will always exist, but it is there ready to be engaged with if you want to. Anyway, if you'd like to contact me at SphereHQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com and you can find the podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify and Stitcher. Likes, ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening.